Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their effort to advance patient-centered, consumer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, we have a really exciting interview today, but before we get to that, I'd like to take a minute to let you know that in the next podcast episode, we're going to do another mini podcast. And what I'm going to do there is share some of the responses that you all have sent in to the uh, Robbie Pearl interview we did on September 27th. It was uh, number 46, Big Problems and Big Solutions in American Healthcare. And Dr. Pearl shared with us his four pillars to building a new healthcare. And we requested that you all send in your pillars. So next episode, we're going to share that and also, I think, do a little bit of a recap on some of the really amazing people we've had had on this podcast series this fall season. So really looking forward to that. So let's uh, get to this interview. Our focus today is on one of the most critically important and rapidly advancing issues in healthcare with wide and deep impact on our health, our salaries and benefits, the health of our families, our communities, and the American economy. We're going to actually discuss two very related topics. The first one is employer-based health care, and the second is a bit of a twist or a pivot that we're seeing emerge in the market, which is employers turning into organizers and providers of health care. Now, let me say that again. Employers turning into organizers and providers of healthcare. Now, I've spent a fair amount of time over the past year speaking with and meeting with employee health benefits managers from some of the largest employers in the country. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I had the unique opportunity to co-lead a half-day workshop with some colleagues from Premier. And, and in that workshop were health benefits managers from Kroger's, Walgreens, ShopRite. And let me just tell you this, the term I've begun to use, and I lifted this from an article I read uh, on fear Healthcare, which is an online journal, they uh, they had an article and it said something about employer health activism. And, and let me just tell you, that's exactly what it feels like. And more importantly, when you look at what employers are doing, the initiatives they're implementing, it's really unprecedented and it's far more disruptive than the consumer high deductible health plans that they've been doing in the past. They're really basically taking healthcare into their hands. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in these perspectives, we've had a number of employer health experts on this podcast, including Catherine Gunther from Merck. She also represents the National Business Group on Health. She's on their board. Uh, Glenn Steele, the former CEO of Geisinger, who's now working with former Senator Rob Andrews uh, in their Health Transformation Alliance. This is a, a coalition of uh, 30 or 40 of the large uh, and powerful employers in this country. Al Lewis has been on the show. Josh Luke, a former CEO. Dave Chase, who formed Health Rosetta, and we actually have an upcoming interview with Dan Contorno. So a, a lot of great podcast interviews if you're interested in the employer healthcare market. So one, before I introduce the interviewee today, there's one introductory point I do want to make, and, and I'd like you to keep this in mind. If you're, if you're wondering why employers might be the most disruptive force in American healthcare today, it's pretty darn simple. They have the most to lose by the system staying the same and they have the most to gain by the system changing to a consumer-oriented, value-based system. I think Warren Buffett captured it in part in his now famous and often repeated statement. He said, the cost of healthcare is the hungry tapeworm of corporate America. But I say he captured it in part because as you'll hear in this interview today, 
Corporate America is pivoting and shifting their focus, not just from managing their own employees' health care, but really considering it as a core line of their business. So there are very few experienced leaders in this country, I think, that are better situated to discuss and describe this topic than our guest this week, Marcus Osborne. Marcus is a Harvard Business School alum, and he's been serving in the role of Vice President of Health and Wellness Transformation at Walmart. He has years of experience in Walmart's previous healthcare delivery initiatives, such as their clinics, their pharmaceutical products and pricing, and their efforts or collaboration with Humana around Medicare Part D. Marcus is going to provide us with insights into Walmart's aspirations and their activities in the healthcare market. He's going to provide us with examples of how Walmart is already achieving and demonstrating its stated goal of improving the healthcare industry by increasing access, outcomes, and affordability. Without further ado, let's drop into the interview, which we conducted a couple of weeks ago, just this October. So, Marcus, before we jump into the questions, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and how did you get to the current role and position that you find yourself in at Walmart? Sure. Um, so, that's actually a good question. I um, in terms of my career, I, you know, I've been with Walmart a little over 11 years. I spent all of it on the uh, doing healthcare related things. For me, it's, it's, you know, when I sort of, the sort of context of, of how I ended up at Walmart and how I ended up doing healthcare at Walmart is, uh, really kind of driven by two things. I, I spent, you know, I, I spent time in politics and in management consulting and, and working across a number of industries. And I sort of find myself to be a curious person. I also find myself saying, I want to go counter to where everybody else goes, because if everybody else is going somewhere, you know, rooms get crowded. And I like to kind of play in space where where others where others aren't. So I happen to be in, as I was leaving, I was at Harvard Business School, as I was leaving Harvard Business School, looking at, you know, everybody else going to work for hedge funds and private equity and venture capital and consulting. And they were going to work for startups and technology. And they were going to, you know, moving to San Francisco or New York or London or, or, you know, China as an emerging market, moving to Shanghai or, or Shenzhen or wherever it was. I said, like, I want to go to the exact opposite place. So there, so a little bit of it was, it was sort of the, the Walmart kind of play, at least was, the, was counterintuitive. It was like, where can I go that that no one else is going? But the other one was impact, which is, you know, I only have so much time um, that you know I, I, I don't know how, how long I will live. I would like I, I would like to, with the time I have, to do something that actually is meaningful and has impact. I'm a missionary, and so I'm driven by mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 what was interesting, and I don't didn't really sort of entirely get it when I came. Um, that sort of that kind of intermissionary found its found the kind of perfect home um, because the the challenge of helping to build not fix because people too often sort of say that the U.S. healthcare system is broken. It's actually not broken. It just was designed for the wrong thing. That's which is a different point. I believe the ability to kind of transform the U.S. healthcare system and have it work for what it should be doing, which is serving people. Um, the, as you think about groups who are in the best position to enable that to happen, no disrespect to the traditional players, no disrespect to Aetna or United or the Blues or Humana or Cigna, no disrespect to HCA or Tenant or CHS or Kaiser or whoever. Um, 
but they're not it. Uh, they're not it. They're they're too steeped in the in the wrong in in the wrong sort of designed system. Um, that you have to look for other players who bring scale and access and resources and capital and and mindset and passion and other things. And and frankly, Walmart's it in my mind uh, and has been. And and I don't sort of say that because I'm here. I say that because that's why I came and that's why I've stayed. So. Um, it sort of led me to do you know what I've done today I, at Walmart. I've, I've done to, I've helped run the clinics business. I worked actually for our associate health plan for a little while. I ran uh, the the longest period of time. I ran what was called the payer relations organization. So all our interactions with third party payers helped. You know, I got to do fun things like design, co-design with the Humana team. The, the the first major preferred Medicare Part D plan, which has fundamentally transformed the Part D market, you know, helped drive, you know, the first direct-to-employer programs in pharmacy with groups like Caterpillar and Toyota and Waste Management and others. Um, and then recently was, you know, given the opportunity to take on a role that which was the company saying, maybe we're ready to kind of go you know, think bigger and potentially go bigger in healthcare, and what what should that be? What does that look like? And so, um, that's what I'm doing now. I run what's called health transformation, and health transformation is exactly what the title implies. It is a strategy and business development and innovation role, but its function is to help um, support the the Walmart enterprise, and particularly in the U.S. Uh, you know, think about and drive forward a, a, in a, on a new path that would have us play a much more significant role in healthcare in the U.S. and for consumers uh, than we are today. Marcus, you've uh, you've really had an exciting career path, and um, it sounds like it's going to get even more exciting in the near future. Before we jump into the next question, though, um, how big is Walmart? I mean, how many employees, locations, how many customers do you see in a day, in a week? Yeah, uh, you know, um, when, when we start talking about it, I think people, you know, take this as, as sort of bragging or sort of being our chest. And, and I actually, I'll sort of share with you those numbers, but I, I say it with some, uh, with an enormous degree of humility, because I think we're blessed to, to actually have achieved the scale that we have. And we, we recognize it puts us in a position um, that is without equal and that it actually obligates us to, to um, do more than others. So uh, uh, if you look at sort of, you know, in the, in just the U S you know, in any given week, about half of Americans will, will visit our stores in a given year, you know, North of 80%, just between 80 and 90% of American consumers, um, you know, will, will, come into our stores 24, 24 or more times a year. So you're saying the vast majority of Americans visit us. I know often, sir, when I talk to people who live in Manhattan or San Francisco, they have like no context of the reality of the role of Walmart in, 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 in the entirety of America. But the vast majority of Americans, vast, vast majority of Americans are coming with great frequency. And when they come, they spend, you know, on average 40 some minutes in our store. So you think about that, that, you know, 80, 85% of Americans come in 25, four times or more a year, spending, you know, 40 minutes or more every time they come, you know, we're not similar to other retailers. You know, you don't see that with a Kohl's or a Target or, a, um, you know, you don't see that with Walgreens or CVS. Um, 
we sort of sit in a unique position, you know, in, in many ways in the communities we're in, we're similar to the Baptist church or the Methodist church, or we're similar to the schools mm-hmm. in terms of how much interaction we have with individuals in that community and how long those individuals engage with us. So, um, so there's that. I think you asked the kind of question as well. How, how big are we from, you know, we're the largest employer. We, we operate the largest self-insured um, health insurance plan in the U.S. Uh, and uh, so we have about 1.4 million associates. We have a little, little over one, almost one and 1.1 million associates uh, on our health plan. So um, we're also big there. I mean, if you, if you think about, uh, I think the last number, and I, 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 this may be a little off, but you know, you think about on the fully insured side, commercial side for United, who would be, you know, an anthem, but they both have somewhere around, you know, eight million or so fully insured lives. You know, they certainly act as ASO for a number of lives, but, um, you know, so we're, we're one eighth the size of, you know, the, on a fully insured basis of, of the largest health insurers in the U S. So, um, so it's just kind of an interesting reality. And so the, the fact is that healthcare mm-hmm. is important to us because, one, we spend four and a half billion dollars on healthcare for our associates. Two, we know it's the number one issue that's facing that, that the number one point of angst and concern amongst our customers. And so the idea that we wouldn't play in healthcare seems kind of a lot of people are like, well, why are you even thinking you should be in it? I think the bigger question is why shouldn't we be in it? We spend more than anybody else on it. We have more customers who are more concerned about it than anybody else. So we're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna play. And so, yeah, so that's, uh, that, uh, maybe that, hope that answers, hope that answers your question. Yes. Thanks, Marcus. It, it absolutely does. It, it actually answered a number of questions. I think people might be surprised, um, that Walmart is in the healthcare business. Um, first as an employer, and you stated this case so well, it, it's, Significant. I mean, over 1 million associates, employees, and probably their, their dependents, uh, that have you as an employer. And so that means you're responsible for their costs of care, their outcomes of care, even the experience of care. Um, you know, if your employees aren't feeling well, they're not going to be productive. They're not going to be present. So a tremendous amount is at stake for you as an employer. And again, the numbers are staggering. I mean, your uh, associate base, the number of lives that you're at risk for from a healthcare perspective on the national front, I mean, puts you, as you, as you said, really in the league of, uh, the largest in- health insurance companies in the country. I-, I never realized that before, you know, um, I want to switch gears with you, though, and, and speak to the other side of what Walmart is doing in healthcare. And, um, y- you know, your role, I mean, you're in, you're the VP of Health and Wellness Transformation. So this is actually a division, a customer, consumer facing division within Walmart. And I'm going to borrow from your own words. Uh, you stated, that the goal of the health and wellness transformation division for Walmart is to improve the healthcare industry by increasing access, quality, and affordability uh, for your consumers. Now, I, I've gone online and I've done a bit of research. I actually went and listened to you speak uh, online at the, um, there was a conference called the HLTH conference. This was the first one, uh, this past May of 2018. And, uh, you said in your introduction in that presentation, um, you said this, I have an announcement. 
And the announcement is Walmart's not going to stand for this. So, Marcus, I guess my question is for you, what is Walmart not going to stand for anymore? Um, and are you speaking as Walmart the employer or are you speaking as Walmart as a disruptor in the and a new entrant really in the healthcare industry? Uh, so what is Walmart going to do in the healthcare industry? I mean, how do you see who you are, uh, where you're going? And quite, quite frankly, are you a disruptor? Well, that's a good question. I, what, I, what I'd say is, are we a disruptor? I think there have been times, certainly, in which we um, have disru- been disruptive. I think, you know, you go back and say, um, you know, almost 12 years ago with the launch of the $4 generic program, where we basically said, look, you know, here's, here's a really simple reality is that consumers are frustrated with and they they were frustrated and they're still frustrated now unfortunately but uh, frustrated with the the price of pharmaceutical product so we said great and they're also sort of frustrated with the lack of transparency like i don't even know what things are going to cost like why, why is it just not knowable you know why are things so darn expensive and why are they why can't i even just know what they cost and so you know we did something simple we said hey what if we took what if we created a program we priced it all at four dollars we took a whole bunch of we took products across every therapeutic category so that there's a solution uh, for every every customer and we just put it out there and see what see what happens you know I had a massive uh, we, we I think massive impact far greater than we would that we than we anticipated it it, it fundamentally transformed the industry and how did it transform the industry well one the, it, it forced other competitors in the retail pharmacy space to react and and sort of think about pricing in a different way. I think there was a study that was done that said it saved the system, you know, north of $10 billion a year. I would actually argue it did something even more fundamental than that. Uh, at the time, you look at, you looked at, um, you know, what, what percentage of, of drugs dispensed in the U.S. were generic versus what percentage should they have been. And, you know, you would, you would see some retail pharmacies that were only dispensing about half of the drugs that they that they dispensed for customers were generic. You know, today that number for us is ninety over ninety percent. For most retailers, it's in the upper eighties. Certainly, some of that is because some brands went generic, but some of it's because when you actually launch a program and say it's we're gonna we're gonna make you aware that these products are there and that they're lower cost, and you should be having conversations with your physicians about these lower cost alternatives, um, and that you know that it changed the dialogue in, in America. Um, and, you know, it, it was a mechanic to, to counter branded pharmaceutical manufacturers who were detailing the hell out of, you know, physicians and convincing them that their product was the best when in fact their product maybe wasn't the best, that there were, that there were lower cost equivalent alternatives. So I say that that's an example of where we have um, done things that have transformed or disrupt. I think certainly I use the example of what we did with Humana on, on part D I think disrupted and that also sort of saved the government and consumers billions of dollars because of the, not just what we did, but how the market reacted. That said, I, I think, I think it, it's fair to say we haven't, I think, I think what we've done on the benefit side actually from centers of excellence and how it has started to kind of move the industry. Um, and you've seen others like Lowe's and Boeing move that direction. We're now hearing, you know, potentially the military uh, moving in that direction. 
Marcus, I just want to pause there for a moment. Um, I'd like you to briefly explain what that means, what a center of excellence uh, means to Walmart, how you're using centers of excellence, and um, fundamentally how you're saving money, um, but even more importantly, how you're improving the care, uh, the health care for your employees. Oh, certainly. So, and and I, I actually think that's probably a, an example um, uh, The is that of, of sort of where we're transforming and where it also, you were asking the question of where we're going. And so maybe I'll sort of use that to kind of pivot um, because I, I think the point is I'll, I'll say that there are examples like Centers of Excellence that, 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 sh- that in which we have been able to transform and disrupt. I also think we have, I think everybody agrees we've not gone anywhere far enough. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the work that we've got going on is what's next. And what I can tell you, I, I unfortunately sorry, I can't tell you everything we're going to do, but what I can tell you is, um, there's more coming and, and I'm actually, I don't, I don't know that I've been as excited or sort of, mm-hmm. uh, as, I don't know that I've ever been as excited in my life as I am at this moment, which was, is sort of a good thing. So that maybe that'll give you at least some flavor of what, what might be coming. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I want to come back on the center of excellence because I think mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really great story because it also tells it for us, it's, this is a process of learning, right? And saying you do something. You see what the impact is. You understand when it does drive impact, you're like, okay, how can I do more? Marcus, I want to jump in here for a second and pick up on something you just said. I've been tracking the history of Walmart and other retailers in the healthcare industry for a number of years. And it seems to me it's exactly what you said. It's It seems to me you've tried a number of things along the way. And in your own words, you just haven't gone far enough. I probably would characterize it as it hasn't worked out. These experiments haven't worked out in the way that you might have hoped them to work out. So whether it be the clinics that you've launched in Walmart or even the pricing strategies that you just discussed, Walmart, it seems, hasn't gone far enough in the past and and it hasn't worked out. Now, clearly, there's an inflection in how you, as the VP of Health and Wellness, are perceiving the future of these initiatives. And like you said, you've never been more excited. Uh, Walmart's about to unleash a whole bunch of programs into the healthcare market over the next few months and few years. So what's the difference between the history of Walmart in healthcare and uh, as a disruptor, and what's about to happen in the future? Um. Well, so I, I guess so. I, here's, I'd, I'd sort of characterize it a little differently. I, you know, I don't know that um, I would sort of character. I mean, this, this, and this is, this is just my sort of sense of it. And and I actually, you know, I'm a, I was a history minor in college. My my mother was a history teacher. I sort of come from a line of history teachers. I also sort of have a great love for, and so so I, I tend to kind of, I have a great love for kind of history in general, and and so tend to kind of assess things almost like a historian. Mm-hmm. And um, what I would actually say is I don't, for, for the, the fundamental challenge that, that Walmart has faced as it relates to healthcare is not sort of a story of like we tried things and they failed and they maybe kind of assessed. Actually, I don't think there's anything we've done that has failed. I think there's some things that maybe didn't work as well as you like, but you learn from it and you move on. Um, and you actually, I think everything that hasn't probably worked as well actually has enabled us to kind of go do something bigger just after it. Um, and that some things we do, we actually just did them to learn. There was no, there was no, re, it wasn't, um, 
you know, you're like, I want to try this because I want to see what the reaction is. I want to learn about things. I want to get smarter. What I would say the biggest challenge that we sort of faced is, is a much more fundamental one, which is at the end of the day, healthcare is a complex industry. It is a, it is a massively regulated industry. It is one in which much of that regulation is driven not around the desire to kind of ensure patient safety or ensure that there's quality, but it's around much of that regulation is designed to protect interests, the interest of health insurers, interest of healthcare providers, be they physicians or the health systems they work for, the interest of drug manufacturers or device manufacturers or what, whoever it is. Um, and so it's a nasty industry. Uh, it's a nasty industry. And so that complexity, that, that sort of regulatory reality, the sort of, um, you know, that's, that is what you're looking at, but it's an, it's a, but if you look at what it's supposed to do, which is help support and take care of the health of individuals, it is a, it is a consumer market, um, that, you know, from our perspective, the challenge is we sort of thought about should we be doing more is really around are we the appropriate group to do it? Because at the end of the day, um, we've, we talk about this a lot. Walmart is in the business of taking care of people, of helping people. But we've done that to date as a retailer. So our our sort of our DNA and our DNA, our code is we're there to take care of people. But the the muscle and everything else that we've built is is about how you actually – address, uh, you know, take care of people through retail needs. So, so healthcare just feels different. It feels like going to Mars. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge that we've had to go through is to what extent do we think we should, you know, to what extent should we prioritize healthcare mm -hmm. because of the challenges I sort of laid out because of the challenges of it being complex, different, a little, you know, outside of where we've historically sort of played you know, even though we've been in healthcare for a long time, even though, you know, third largest pharmacy provider, second largest vision center provider, large, far and away the largest provider of over-the-counter solutions from a healthcare perspective. Um, but, you know, we haven't, we don't have a long history of healthcare services, medical services. We don't have a long history of doing lab diagnostic solutions. We don't have a history of dental care. We don't have a long history, though we've been in it for a while, a little while of, you know, supporting healthcare financing and selling and insurance. Um, so it's just a different. And so I think it's been a, you know, like anything you, you say, I think this is an interesting space, but mm -hmm. it takes some time to kind of convince an organization mm -hmm. that it should be a place you want to play. And what I, what I'd sort of hope to impart is I think we sort of find ourselves at a moment in which, um, we have kind of turned that corner and said, now there's no doubt we're going to play. The real question is, what are we going to go do? Um, and, and how are we going to go do it? And who do we do it with? And I think that last question is the most important one, which is our sense is disrupt the, the greatest disruption will, that will occur will occur with, with entities who have, who are savvy enough to understand you can't go it alone, but you have to have partners. And if you and if you sort of find those right kind of partners and you bring the right kind of assets together and resources and the the, the sort of collective will, um, you can drive real change because otherwise there's no one entity who can sort of um, make change um, despite what all the 
news media might sort of say about other, you know, about us or Amazon or mm-hmm. Alphabet or whoever it might be, there's not, that's absurd. And right. um, so I think for us, we've sort of turned that corner and now, um, but it's, but it, but it takes time because it's, you have, people have to kind of be convinced that not only is it the right thing to do, but that we can be successful in doing it. Yeah, Marcus, that's, uh, your response is so, uh, so helpful. And I, I have to say, I, I think you've probably given me a different perspective and I would, uh, characterize what Walmart's been doing, the experiments you've been running in healthcare quite differently now after listening to you, uh, comment ab- about it. You know, and it sounds like now, and I think this is true for other retailers and payers and employers in the market who, have gone through similar experiments over the past few years and are coming to the same conclusion as Walmart. It's sort of like Walmart is, what you're saying is Walmart is all in. You've made finally the decision to go into healthcare, not just as an employer, but as a vendor, as a provider. So the question, the question is not if, but how. And so how do you go about operationalizing this? And, and again, when I think of Walmart, I think you have so many advantages um, in the healthcare market. Your size, how many customers, how many customers you see and are exposed to, the technology and the analytics and the logistics that you all bring to bear. I, I think fundamentally, however, the major advantage, as I see it, is that you understand customers in a way that is so far advanced uh, compared to the mainstream of healthcare delivery, and so. I think this is actually a real key pivotal point for me, at least. And I'm curious if you think it's important. I certainly do. I, I, so, and this kind of goes back to probably expanding a little bit on a point I was making earlier. I'd actually say we don't. I, I've sort of come to this conclusion, and maybe it is that we do understand consumers better than others. But I actually think the other fact is we respect them more than others. And we certainly respect them more than anybody in the healthcare industry does. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I don't mean that in a sort of rude or offensive way. I mean that in a, it's just, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, and it's something I sort of talk about a lot that it, it goes back to where I said, I don't think that the system is broken or failing. I think it is actually working perfectly. And I've said this a lot that we're, it's perfectly for what it was designed to do, that the fundamental problem is a design problem. Is a design principles problem, and this may sound a little academic, but but um, but it's not. And it's it's a it's it's it, I think it's critically important. So what I mean by that is I, I think that and I've coined this term of the balance interest paradigm in healthcare, which is what I hear all the time, where people will say they get on and say, yeah, consumers are important, and consumers are really important. And what we need to do is, and then this is what they say: we need to build solutions. And that the very best solutions are those that take into account the needs of the consumer or the patient and the payer and the provider and the product manufacturer. That, that when you build solutions that everybody's sort of interests are aligned, that's the most, that's when you can be successful and drive change. That is, from my perspective, complete bull, mm-hmm. complete bull. Mm-hmm. And that is the problem. That's the problem. Right. It's not that things are broken or people, you know, it's that is the problem. Well, so why is it complete bull? Because healthcare, the healthcare is about the consumer only. It, it, it is. It, it, at the end of the day, physicians and hospitals exist to serve people. 
health insurers exist to uh, sometimes insurers well, we exist to serve our clients and those are the employers. Okay, well then great. The employers are there. The employers are delivering a benefit plan to serve the consumer. So at the end of the day, I don't really care who you think you serve. At the end of the day, you as an insurer serve consumers. You as a physician serve consumers. Uh, you as a pharmaceutical manufacturer making products for consumers. Those pills are going in people's mouths. Those hip replacements are going in people's hips. Mm-hmm. That device is that it's a consumer market. It's no different than retail. I mean, it, the balance interest view of the world, mm-hmm. if that were applied in retail, would be patent absurdity. That what that would say it, it would be it would to say, you know, yeah, the consumer really matters, um, and that the best solutions in retail are those in which they balance the interests of the consumer and the retailer and the product manufacturer. So you're trying to tell me that Walmart's interests and needs and Procter and Gamble and Coca Cola and Unilever's and and Mondelez's interests mm-hmm. matter as much as the people that they're serving. That's that's stupidity, right? Like that, that's laughable, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, but yet we sort of believe that in healthcare. And I think, so in my mind is to say, no, no, no. So, to, so you think about the experiences we've created in healthcare for people mm-hmm. and we say, well, you know, you gotta be, and, and in fact, I have, I have to battle this with my own team all the time. I had a meeting just yesterday where somebody was saying, well, we're getting going through this design process and we really need to get input of the providers because, you know, their input about how this gets designed. I'm like, actually, I don't care about them. I, I really don't. I don't care about them because I want them. If we design this in a way that is truly around the needs of the consumers, I think the providers are going to get it. And I think they're going to be excited to be in there and, and be able to take care of people in the way that they want to be taken care of. And so, you know, I, I think about, again, go back to the experiences. You, you think about, um, uh, you know, I, well, I, I, the one that sort of comes to mind recently was a story of a, of a guy who's, whose father had had, had had hip replacement mm-hmm. surgery and had bis- been discharged and sent home. And he sort of described this discharge experience where they just gave him a bunch of papers and the guy was, poor guy was drugged up and, had been, you know, was in pain and they sort of told him he can do all this stuff and he gets home and, you know, nine days later he was readmitted. Well, guess what he was readmitted for? Um, he, he had, he had not, he didn't have food in his house. He didn't have enough food in his house. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the way he described it was the doctor was blaming him. Well, why didn't you get food in your house? Like well, poor guy was, I mean, I think about it from my perspective. Like, I know that I'm getting ready to go have a surgery. I got all this stuff going on. The last thing I think of is I need to have 15 days of food in the refrigerator, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you wanted this to be a real good experience, what you should have said is if you were worried about me really being readmitted, mm-hmm. you should have created a program where you enabled me to have, you came and actually had all the food I'm going to need for the next month delivered in my home and it's prepared and there's a little thing like it's all there just done for me. And if you're worried that I'm going to slip and fall getting out of bed because I don't have a walker, make sure the freaking walker is already sitting by my bed when I get home. Like, like you've created experience that's convenient for you as the health system or as the health insurer. Like, no, no, no. Build it for the consumer and then let's see what happens. And so I think that's, that's, that's the mentality. And, and from my perspective, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong to kind of think that. But what I would say is let's just go do it and see what happens. Because what I can tell you is the existing sort of approach isn't working, that, that we're spending way too much, not getting sort of good enough results. The trend is terrible. So, okay, let's go do something. Let's go try it a different way. Let's go build an experience that is just exclusively about the consumer. Let's see how that one works. Let's see the results that we get. Um, 
and I'm, I'm a bit, you know, I have, I'm a, it's a calculated bet, but I believe if we did that, it would be a very different deal. Um, you know, I, I, I'll give you one example, uh, another mm-hmm. example that I think is a good one that actually relates to our associates and some work, David Hoke, um, who runs the wellness part of our, it runs wellness for us from an associate perspective. Um, you think about all these kind of health plans and they're pushing these weight management programs, trying to get people to lose weight and pushing them on. You need to lose weight. Your doctors go in and tell you, you know, you need to eat healthier, exercise more, lose weight. That's all people hear. Um, he, he sort of helped bring forward a program that we, that, that, that was really interesting. And I'm going to give you the results uh, first. The results are there over the last couple of years, as this program has sort of been rolled out amongst just our associates, it hasn't gone to customers yet. Um, there are more individuals on this program. It's called ZP who have lost a hundred pounds or more and kept it off than all the weight management programs that exist of all related, all the payers and employers combined. Meaning, and by the way, we only have 1.4 million associates. So we're saying those 1.4 million associates have generated more hundred pound or more weight loss on weight uh, uh, from this program than all the other weight management programs combined. And by the way, it's not because our associates are any more overweight or obese than America. They're actually at index. They're equal to the rest of America. Mm-hmm. So the question is, wow, this must be the greatest weight management program in the free world, except that it has literally nothing to do with weight management. If you ever go into ZP, there's not a word about weight management. Mm-hmm. It's a storytelling platform where it was really simple. It said, hey, we know you're doing things in your life to you know, try to live a healthier life. And there are other people out there who would benefit from hearing those stories. We'd really like for you to tell your story. Tell us what you're doing. Oh, by the way, if you tell a really good story, you might win a prize. You might win a financial prize. It might be 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks or 5,000 bucks. I think at some point there were even bigger prizes. I think at one point there was a $100,000 prize. And, th- and that, that was as determined by your peers, meaning if your peers think your story is really great, you're going to maybe make some money. And now we have, you know, millions of interactions and hundreds of thousands of these stories. And what we're finding is people going in telling their story, but also other people going in and reading the stories of people who've been successful and saying, well, I can do that. You know, I may not do it exactly the same way that he or she did it, but I can do that. I can, you know, I, um, and that it's generating results that these traditional kind of rigid weight management programs never did or never could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that the traditional approach from the physician community, not to pick on you or others, but like that you need to, yeah, you need to lose weight, you need to eat healthier. That never motivated anybody to do anything, never got anybody to do anything. Yeah. So I think about it, you know, there's a perfect example around a consumer only mentality. What David delivered was a program that was completely about the interests and needs of the individual. That was about giving them something that they wanted, which is a, an environment for me to come and share my story and an environment for me to kind of learn from others. And in doing that, he got results that are better than anybody else in the industry. Yeah, I, I love that story. It's clearly working. It's great. I, I, I'd love to learn a little bit more about it. Uh, the stories, how are they shared? Is this an app or are they shared on your internal uh, 
SharePoint uh, or sites, uh, how are the stories shared? Well, it was originally, actually, it was funny enough, it was originally analog. You had to write the stories and mail them in, right? Um, and then we would send out these kind of booklets. Now it's digital. Now you can sort of go on to an app or on, I think there's also sort of a Facebook attachment and some other things where people can kind of go into the sites um, and, and read them. Um, uh, but, you know, it also went to show us that you don't have to have everything sort of, I mean, like it, it was successful analog, Right. Just yeah, uh, right, yeah. Right. So, um, so yeah, no, it's, and, and, uh, so anyway, it could, it could be that there was a booklet that was sitting in the break room and you read it during break. So, yeah, I, I really, I really like this idea. These stories, uh, are inspiring people to do the same. And of course people want to share their stories. It, it almost sounds like, uh, what, uh, we call in behavioral health, uh, uh, an appreciative inquiry kind of phenomena. I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, it's it's interesting just going back to the issue you discussed before, the consumer or customer journey. We were just in a meeting, uh, I think it was yesterday, talking about uh, post-surgical care. And, um, you know, one of the major problems that our employers are facing uh, with their employees after surgery is that you come home, you know, an employee comes home or patient comes home and Right. There's the, there may not be food in the house. They might not have the right, uh, rehab equipment in the home. Uh, you know, even, uh, a walker of some sort. And so it, it's really important to, uh, as they say, map out the entire customer journey from beginning to completely to the end and, and really make sure that, uh, the, the patient customer has everything that they need and including, again, really some very, very basic things. This, this idea of food. And, you know, again, this speaks to the whole movement now, the social determinants of health movement. So, so I really want to thank you for sharing that story. It's, it's really quite remarkable. And again, I, I think it really is an inflection in, 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 in bringing in a consumer perspective into what has been up to now really just a, a clinical endeavor. Also want to just go back to your, your, your second story. Um, well, I want to go back to the storytelling. Um, I, I, I do believe it speaks to, again, thinking very, very differently about motivation and behavior change, not in a mechanistic way. And again, if you, if you look at the whole field of behavioral economics, um, it's demonstrated that we're not rational widgets. We, we have emotions, we have relationships, we're complex beings. We're not machines. Yeah, yeah. but I would, I would actually argue that I think, but I think what, what is often sort of missed is that they, we, are, we are actually reasonable and that the, the, the issue is that, and I, you know, I, I'm actually, I would tell you that we have been massively impacted by um, some of the work that individuals like Alex, Alex Drain, who, who was the founder of Eliza Corp did, um, when she was at Eliza and a little bit afterwards around things like the unmentionables, which is, Hey, you want, you know, I'm a diabetic. You want me to kind of, you want me to test daily and take my meds and take my insulin and eat better and do all these things. Like, that'd be great. But right now I'm dealing with the fact that I have a aging parent who I'm the caregiver for. Or I have a boss who's a complete, you know, right. pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. And, or I have, you know, I'm dealing with kind of marital distress. Like, yeah, like, you know, what you hear from consumers is like, shut up. Like, I don't really care what you as a system want me to do. Like, I care about what I want. Like, I'm, I'm trying to take care of my kids. And so 
that the I think what we sort of learned is that actually too often sort of we, we sort of assume that we as consumers are unreasonable. Actually, we're wild. I think we are much more rational. I think, but we were more than anything we are reasonable, and that the healthcare industry is unreasonable to sort of expect us to do what it wants us to do. And then if the system was really smart, it would come and say, how do I help you address the needs that you have as an individual? And then maybe if we did that, um, you know, we'd be in a better position to kind of address the kind of next level issues. So I I think, I think that's critical. Yes. Uh, You know, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I love the word reasonable. I think you're speaking to this issue that the healthcare industry has traditionally forced people to enter into the clinical context as opposed to healthcare entering into the context of people's lives. And, you know, we know if, if you want to help anybody, you really have to understand them first. You got to meet them where they are. You can't force people into some other construct. And so I, I think what you're making, uh, saying makes a lot of sense. It, it's really helpful. Um, and I also, what I really found helpful was your exposition on, on the consumer perspective. I spent a lot of time speaking uh, to provider groups about this, and I think they're struggling um, with what that means. Uh, to many, uh, they think of consumerism uh, under retail as, I'm going to try to get you to buy as much as I can get you to buy. Um, and And so... Physicians, providers uh, will pull out the medical ethic or medical professionalism card and, and say, say to me, you know, in healthcare, we're not about selling. We're about help, helping people. So they immediately write off the whole notion of consumerism. So I'd, I'd love for you to help me uh, respond to that question, number one. And number two, there's another, another argument or another question which often comes up, which is about consumerism in healthcare, which is, People, patients are a, are often a different type of consumer. You know, when you're really sick, you're not feeling well, you're in pain. It's not like you're just going into a store or going online and purchasing something. I mean, you're coming at it from a very different place. And there's actually some literature that speaks to this, that when you get sick, when you have an illness, um, you, you've almost entered into a different world, a different universe. Um, you've left the, the normal world and, 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 you know, you're, you're, you, you might have a disability, um, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, whether it's temporary or permanent, um, you're, you're, you may not be able to walk the same or talk the same or eat the same. And, and so it, it really changes your context and your perspective and your behavior. So again, whether it's short limited or permanent, um, whether it's mild, moderate, severe, there is something different about the patient who is experiencing illness or trauma, the patient as a consumer. So, uh, so Marcus, I'd really love for you to respond to this idea of, uh, number one, you know, is consumerism just about getting people to buy more or, and, and to sell more? And this other issue of, um, how patients experience illness are perhaps a different type of consumer. Yeah, actually. So I guess what I'd say is I don't actually think consumerism, even in retail, is about getting people to buy more. I think consumerism is about, I think consumerism is a real, the, the concept of it is getting an individual what they want and what they need when they want it, where they want it, how they want it, and it, in, in a way, including at a price that is as reasonable and as low as you can possibly make it. And that's it. That's consumerism. 
And so what I would say is that applies to healthcare, right? Uh, that, that, you know, the battle in retail, you know, and I, I think you've got sort of two Goliaths. You've got, you got sort of Walmart, who's the Goliath, who's the biggest of the bricks and mortar guys trying to kind of make inroads in, on the digital side. You've got, the, you've got Amazon, who's sort of the Goliath, who's the, who's the clear and dominant kind of leader in digital, trying to make inroads potentially in bricks and mortar. You've got those two groups along with a whole range of wildly sort of capable competitors like, you know, Costco and HEB and Kroger and others, um, Aldi and others that, um, that are all trying to do the same thing, which is get people what they want, when they want it, how they want it, where they want it, and the form that they want it, the best price that they want it. Um, so I think the challenge in healthcare is to do the same. I mean, that's, that's it to say, uh, too often that the, the sort of idea of consumerism in healthcare isn't about trying to get people to do more. It's about trying to get people what they want or what they need in the way they want it, how they want it, where they want it, and recognizing that that may change based on the hour or the day or my age or any number of things. Like it shouldn't matter. Like uh, healthcare is, you know, we we have failed in healthcare to deliver a legitimate omni-channel experience for consumers to say like right now I'm, you know, I, uh, you know, like a good good example was uh, that I'll, that I'll give you that is just on pharmacy. You know, uh, uh, ninety days ago, I I, I have a couple. I, I have the great honor my 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 father and grandfather gave me sort of questionable genetics, so I, I have risk of cardiovascular disease in my family. So I preemptively am taking Lipitor. So I've just disclosed HIPAA for everybody. But um, so I get that filled every ninety days. So ninety days ago. Uh, I needed to pick up that script. I actually was inclined because of what I had going on. I wanted to go into the store. I wanted to get it. I wanted to get in. I wanted to get out quickly. Okay, great. Yesterday, I needed to, it, it was being refilled. There was no way in my day or schedule that I could sort of go and pick that up. What would have been really nice if it was just sitting on my counter when I got home. Um, I, that didn't happen. Um, but you, you think about that. You know, I want what I want when I want it. I don't want you to sort of dictate to me the terms. And so I think our challenge when you think about consumerism is how do we actually build an experience in healthcare that enables me to get, get all that in the way that I, that I want it as an individual, regardless of who I am, right. recognizing that we as individuals have very different needs, um, or different expectations. Um, and so I think maybe that's kind of the answer to both of your questions. I think what we think what we're trying to help build or create is that is that sort of experience that is completely based around, you know, serving individuals. And, and it's not really, again, trying to get them to do more. Um, though, the, though I would say that the net result might be you see more consumption. I mean, is, and so I would say, like, is it a bad thing if Mm-hmm. People got their were able to kind of find a way to get their cholesterol checked more often, or blood pressure read more often, or uh, what if they were able to kind of come in and ask people, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, you know, some some sort of individual who is a medical advisor questions, mm-hmm. um, so that they were more informed. Like, is that is that a is that a bad thing? I think the consumption that I, only consumption I'm worried about is yeah. that that I don't want to see increases. We need to stop. 
with the procedures that are unnecessary. When you stop with the, you know, with yeah. the, uh, uh, that's that's the stuff that we need to stop consumption around because it's useless, yeah. wasted yeah. consumption. Yeah. But uh, but I actually think um, I think sort of enabling an environment where it actually makes people easier for people to engage. Maybe the result is we see more consumption, but I think ultimately that'll be better for us systemically. You know, it's interesting. This actually brings us uh, right back to the question we've been putting on hold about the centers of excellence, and and it does tie right into your answer. I do think you answered both of my questions. Um, I think your point, uh, as I hear it, is that we in healthcare actually don't understand uh, the consumer, what consumers need. Um, we have a perspective um, that, quite honestly, isn't consistent with or aligned with uh, the one you just uh, you articulated and illustrated, which is really about understanding who the individual is and understanding what they actually want um, and need and, and delivering it to them in a way that's convenient and, and affordable. And so your, your definition of consumerism is, is, is really about bringing value and enhancing people's lives whether they're healthy for the most part and they just need a pill or they've got multiple medical problems and are really ill, um, it really fundamentally consumerism addresses both those situations. And, um, you know, so here's the thing, and it's hard for me to say this, but, you know, having been in healthcare for so long, but when providers or others raise this so-called patient-centered card, the professional ethic and medical professionalism, I just, it, it's hard for me not to point out the reality in our so-called patient-centered era or patient-centered world. Um, I mean, we for decades uh, under this, you know, ethic have really been uh, pushing a tremendous um, inappropriate utilization of services on patients. And so, so I, I, I just find it um, hard to, you know, um, to, um, to reconcile or abide by that argument that, that patient-centered care and, and the ethic and, and professionalism of medicine is, um, is, is one thing and consumerism is something else. I, I think that consumerism, uh, and customer service can, can have and should have. And as I see it play out, does have a, an ethic and a moral responsibility to the people it serves. And I, I think you're, you're, you know, really articulating this exceptionally well. Um, and, and, you know, I do in a moment, I, I do definitely want you to respond to some of the, uh, statistics and numbers that in fact demonstrate that uh, the application of consumerism, particularly with your your centers of excellence, actually does reverse the inappropriate and I would say unethical um, overutilization of, uh, in particular, of surgical procedures that we've experienced for the last uh, decade or two or more in uh, in American healthcare. So, uh, so I, I guess the point is, I I don't I don't believe. We actually could do any worse by ad adopting consumerism and giving it a go. Um, I think, in fact, um, what you and others have demonstrated is, in fact, um, in fact, it, it does it does actually improve uh, this issue of healthcare utilization. So, um, so maybe we can get back to the centers of excellence, and, and you can tell us uh, how Walmart is uh, is applying it. Yeah. Um, so. So yeah, so I think what you're sort of describing is spot on, and and so the the, the sort of context of the centers of excellence is, and, and and where they started, and what we've actually learned, and where it's kind of now leading us from a journey perspective, I think it, it sort of is very much in line 
with what you were just describing. The concept was a simple one that said, as we looked in at certain categories of care, particularly around procedures, so you think about hip and knee replacement or, or knee scopes or spinal fusions or um, so a lot of orthopedic things or cardi- cardiology related needs, so stent placement or um, that there was a lot, that there's a lot of the, the kind of origination of the center of excellence was that there's a lot of poor quality. More quality means that somebody comes in and gets those procedures done. And I, I want to be very clear in the definition of quality here. Quality meaning um, when you do something, do you do it well? Um, and so if somebody comes in and gets that procedure, how likely are they to be readmitted with complications in the next day, week, two weeks, month, whatever it might be? How, how, how likely are you to get that sort of good outcome? versus a not good outcome. Um, and we and, and so that was sort of the concept of the Center's Excellence. Okay, what we'll, how about we create a program where we'll steer our associates who need those procedures to specific hospitals or health systems across the U.S. who, who will kind of specialize in those categories um, for, for those procedures. So, you know, the idea of sending you to, to uh, Cleveland Clinic for um, stent uh, or sending you to, to um, um, you know, whoever, uh, Geisinger for spine, a spine and hip and knee, what, whatever it might be, sending you to Mayo for transplant mm-hmm. um, or Mayo for c- cancer. Mm-hmm. So the idea was about was a quality story that we, based on some of the analysis, we saw that these were systems that seem to be delivering better quality. Great. We're going to sort of create a program where we'll incentivize our associates to use them over other options. Um, or in some cases, we actually, like on transplant, saying you have to use them, meaning we won't sort of cover that transplant if you uh, don't go to Mayo. Um, what was interesting and what we didn't fully sort of understand when we launched this was that the benefit, we, there has been enormous benefits. I mean, this program has been wildly successful. Mm-hmm. But the success that came was not entirely from the area that we anticipated um, and I, I should say the other little kind of interesting fact is everybody assumed around these centers of excellence that we did them in a very Walmart way that we went in and basically kind of beat people up on price and said, you're going to give us lowest unit cost. In fact, we didn't do that. The only thing that we did say is we want it bundled. We want a bundled arrangement. But in some cases we said, you tell us what your bundle payment is and that's what we'll take. Okay. So there was not a lot of negotiation around it. So, so I just want to underscore your point. So, so you're saying that Initially, you thought that uh, the sending your patients to the Mayo for cancer treatment or Geyser for heart surgery might be less costly. That, that was not it. That was not. That's we not didn't negotiate. Value. We didn't negotiate yeah. unit price. In fact, in some cases, they were higher than. In many cases, they were higher than what somebody else might be. So where's the, the value? Reason, the value would have been quality to say, well, there's a cost related when people get readmitted. There's a cost with with complications. There's a cost to poor outcomes. Mm-hmm. That was, in fact, true. Mm-hmm. There was we found that when the because the quality was better, mm-hmm. um, that it, it did generate return. But that was an actual where we got the greatest benefit in return, both from uh, helping our associates and financially. It was around this point of appropriateness. And appropriateness and quality are two different points that sometimes people kind of merge them, but they shouldn't because that's a mistake. Quality is if you do something, do you do it well? Appropriateness is should you even be doing the thing that you're doing? Mm-hmm. It's a more fundamental question. In fact, what I would tell you is what we've learned, it matters more 
to assess a provider on appropriateness than it does quality because you can game quality by doing inappropriate things. You can do hip replacements on perfectly healthy people that don't need them, that have better alternatives and get really good outcomes, but that's because they were healthy. And so the, um, so anyway, that was what we learned. And then the data staggering. I think, uh, you know, thir- more than 30% of the time, individuals who were being told they need hip or knee replacements were being sent to a center of excellence, would then be sent home and being told you don't need that hip or knee replacement. 50% of the time, spinal fusions, same on spinal fusions being sent home, 50% of the time because they didn't need them. 85% of the time um, being sent home, being told you don't need a stent. Um, the, the, though we didn't launch in maternity, the original the data we've seen is that potentially as high as 90% of the C-sections, 90% of the inductions being done systemically are inappropriate. Um, and the probably the one that we that is just is is the one that frightens me mm-hmm. is cancer. Um, and there are two stats there. One is that about 10% of the time, an individual with has been diagnosed and is being treated for cancer has been sent to a center's excellence, and they're being sent home and being told, you either don't have cancer or your cancer diagnosis is so wildly off as to be criminal, meaning you're being told you have lung cancer and you have prostate cancer. There is no cancer in your lung. It's somewhere else in your body in a different organ entirely, a different treatment regimen. 30% of the time, though, above the 10%, we're finding that they're completely on a completely inappropriate uh, treatment plan. They're being told they need six months of chemo and they really only need six weeks. They're being told they needed chemo and radiation and a drug when the drug would have done just fine. So it, it literally doesn't. And by the way, we're learning other things. It's not just about appropriateness, not just are you doing sort of procedures you don't need, but what we're finding is inappropriate referrals. So, primary care physicians referring to a specialist when the primary care physician was, was the appropriate venue for that care. Um, you know, and the, and it, you know, obviously this goes into imaging and other things. Um, and so what we, what, and, and so when you sort of put that all together, what that sort of is telling us is, let me put a real number on it. I would tell you, I told you we spent four and a half billion dollars. Our estimate is that translates into at least a billion, if not, a billion and a half or more of completely wasted spend on inappropriate care. And when I say wasted, I could literally go in the parking lot today, and I've said this, and set it on fire and get of that same amount of money and get more of a return. And the reason I get more of a return is when I said it was inappropriate, it meant I paid for something I didn't need. But what's worse is we know that for uh, the, the hip and knee, the center of excellence example, uh, or and spine example, that an associate gets sent to a center of excellence and because of this sort of assessment from an appropriate perspective, it's getting back to work two weeks faster than a non-COE. Okay, well, that now means I have associates who are more productive. Okay, well, good. I'm not having to hire a replacement for them. I don't have to retrain. Uh, I don't have to train somebody new. Uh, I can get somebody who, an associate who is experienced back to work sooner so they can do their job. They can make money for their family you think about that added benefit. That's why burning the money would get me more of a return than, than spending it the way I'm spending it. And so, so, so it's the 1 billion that you're saying that you would save by reducing or, or eliminating these inappropriate procedures and surgeries. There probably is a much larger savings that could potentially be two or three times that number in terms of productivity loss. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, it's yes. I mean, we've only been. I would say that's that's likely. That's, right, that's likely it. Yes, that's great. Um, you know, and I've I've read this uh, with other employers, uh, similar statistics, and and again, I, I heard you and your colleague Lisa Woods, the health benefits manager for Walmart, talk about these statistics. I mean, they're startling. Twenty-five to fifty percent of the surgeries that are initially recommended when the employee goes to the center of excellence, um, they're reversed. They're literally told you don't need it by the world-class experts. Um, not only do they not need it, it could potentially harm them in the long run. And, and some of these procedures like spinal fusions, 80 or 90% of them, um, uh, are, uh, of the patients who, who go to the center of excellence are told they don't need it. It's really, it's really mind boggling. The, the cancers also that you're pointing out, um, that actually in some respects is, is even more frightening. 10% of the diagnoses are wrong and somewhere to 30 to 50% of the treatment plans are adjusted or changed um, at these centers of excellence when they get a second opinion. Um, I mean, this is so critically important. Um, and uh, I do think, again, going back to the conversation and the point here, I, I think that what you've done, again, is applied a consumerist approach and I think this is a strong argument for an example of uh, one of many of how a consumerist approach actually um, does the right thing um, uh, from the part of, uh, of uh, healthcare and from the part of the perspective. And quite honestly, and I, I, I am reluctant to say this, but um, but as opposed to what's happening right now in healthcare, um, so um, so let me let me. Uh, let me just, I want to be a little bit mindful of time. And I have to just say, I, I really enjoy listening to you. I, I admire your directness. Um, and I just want to thank you for all of that. I have a couple more questions I'd like to get to before we wrap up. Um, you know, I know you can't go into any detail about the initiatives uh, and programs, uh, 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 healthcare programs that Walmart's going to uh, deploy into the healthcare market over the next few months or next year or two. Um, but could you give us a sense of um, what you see happening once once you've deployed it? Is there a picture or a story? What will healthcare look like in the next three to five years? And I know we're not talking about 10 years. I'm really talking about the next couple of years. So that's a good question. It, it will look more like retail, meaning it will feel more, you know, more accessible. I think it will feel simpler to, to people. Um, I think so. So I, so uh, so I, when, what I mean by that is I think you're going to see new, new physical based delivery models in which the sort of experience of that is more akin to, you know, Chick-fil-A, um, and, and what you, and maybe, you know, in and out than, you know, than, than, you know, than a HCA hospital or a tenant hospital. Um, and, and so, the and the result being that sort of improved sense of accessibility and and simplicity of it will sort of i think drive a different level of engagement from a consumer perspective i think the other thing that i sort of highlight that i, th I don't, you know when you say 3 years i think it's probably a little too soon 5 i think starts to get pretty reasonable mm -hmm. there the other thing that's occurring in the background is the sort of recognition that um, the healthcare industry has gotten um, 
its approach to analytics and and analyzing sort of individual kind of health wrong um, because it's been sort of too dependent on the the data that exists in healthcare claims and clinical data in EMR. It's a fundamental fact, like even on our own plan, a third of associates don't even generate a claim in a given year. I mean, they they, they don't they don't go to the they haven't gone to the doctor. They didn't have any need to go to the doctor. They didn't have a prescription drug. Does that mean they didn't exist? No, they did exist, but the healthcare industry doesn't think they existed. And they start to make sort of wild assumptions about them. The um, So I say that to say that um, I think that there's all, the other thing that's occurring is this, this potential change around um, uh, that we're going to start to use all this other data about us. Our behavior, you know, what are we buying? What are we searching for? What are we watching on Netflix? What are we liking on Facebook? And recognizing that there, are, within that data, there are there are things that are, you know you can start to analyze it and 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 look at what I'm doing and start to identify small changes in my behaviors, and that those changes potentially are indicative of things like disease onset, disease progression. They can identify when social realities are now starting to emerge that are going to impact my health. They can help you start to predict what kind of health interventions are most likely to be successful with me and tailor those interventions to, to me kind of individually. Um, you think about, and it's not, you know, you take that behavioral side with what's also going on on the sort of genetic side, that that has an ability now to sort of create a level of, a much more informed and predictive environment to identify risk sooner. Because I, I see, you know, what we sort of see is this is this fact, and this was sort of shared with us by, by a team, by a group from the CDC a number of years ago, that today when an individual is diagnosed, for example, with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, there, you know, there's a process that, you know, I, I went and had some lab tests run, including an A1C, and the doctor read them, and based on that sort of, reading of those tests and some other things. The doctor says, hey, you've got diabetes. Okay. The question was, the point or the point is that individuals do not become diabetic at the moment of of that diagnosis. They they were they had sort of crossed the line from pre-diabetic to diabetic at some point earlier. Mm-hmm. How much earlier? Well the data indicates three to five years before that mm-hmm. that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well man, there's a lot that happens in three to five years. And there's a lot that you could have done and so to, to, to sort of drive positive change and impact, had you know. And so I think this, this sense that the, the sort of analytic environment, that the insight environment, that the individual level insight environment is, is changing very rapidly. You have big players, small players, entrepreneurs, innovators sort of coming in and recognizing, um, that you can't, so you should, if, that beyond what the healthcare industry has done, if you sort of do it in a different way, um, there's a real opportunity to kind of create a much more predictive um, uh, approach that will allow us to engage as individuals much sooner when there are sort of potential risks. And that that has the fundamental, and it, you couple that with a new service environment, um, a new physical service environment, and, and you know, new approaches to, to to kind of deliver these services that are much more consumer oriented, and the emergence of all these digital health solutions that we're going to have to kind of figure out how to create a better marketplace for them to make it easier for consumers to engage. But if you think about the bringing together of those three things, the, the, a, a new consumer centered physical environment, a, a new sort of digital health marketplace, uh, 
um, a, a predictive kind of analytic environment. Um, I think it is a very different system. I think it's a very different system that instead of it being sort of the only time people sort of engage is when it's really late in the process, you're going to see much more sort of push to the front end. So, um, so anyway, that's, I, I, I think, I, you know, is that three years? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's quick change. Um, but, but who knows? Like, uh, you know, it could be. Well, well, first of all, I think that that was an outstanding picture of these three major fundamental shifts that are coming together that can really transform healthcare. It's a great, great picture. And I, and I thank you for that. And importantly, it's the trajectory that we've talked about, whether it's three years or five years or seven years, these things don't just happen overnight. It's not like one day you wake up and it's changed. You have to be moving in that direction. And I think that the winners are moving in that direction and the others are not. And it sounds like Walmart is on that trajectory. We're trying to be, and I think I, we're trying to be. I think we sort of recognize there's a number of other groups who are also trying to do oh. it as well. And I think oh, it's, it, it, that also is sort of what makes it fun, right? To, to your point, it, it's not one entity or stakeholder that's going to create the change. It's this idea, the realization, going back to what you said earlier, that it's going to take partnerships and collaborations that haven't existed really until now. It's really exciting. Um, it, it really, this point really underscores what you've been saying. I know, Marcus, we, I have so many questions, but I know we have to uh, sort of wrap this up. And um, I do, I do want to, um, I do want to ask you a question in our correspondence. When I asked you what was the best piece of advice you were ever given, you wrote back two words, love and action. And you also wrote that you were thinking a lot lately about the Langston Hughes poem motto. I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with that poem. Uh, I'm familiar with Langston Hughes, but not this specific poem. So I'm going to ask you what that poem means to you and, and what relevance it has for your work, specifically your work in, in, in healthcare. So c- could you, could you read that poem to us? Uh, it's, it's, I play it cool and dig all jive. That's the reason I stay alive. My motto as I live and learn is dig and be dug in return. Wait, wait, could you say that again? So, so I, I play it cool and dig all jive. That's the reason I stay alive. My motto as I live and learn is dig and be dug in return. And, um, I think there's sort of two parts. The first part is a story about curiosity and about sort of being open. And that I think the, my, the learning for healthcare is, I think often in healthcare, we're not, it's not a particularly curious industry um, that you, you actually have to be, are you curious about what do people want and why do they want it? And like, you know, do you figure out how to kind of, um, um, you know, are you, are you sort of open to possibilities as opposed to being closed off. And so I think that sort of openness and optimism and curiosity is critical. I think on the back half, um, it's, uh, it's a little bit of, of, uh, there's, you know, there's a little bit of like the golden rule there, you know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. And that, I think that's, I, I, I would fundamentally tell you if the healthcare industry operated that way, we'd be a lot better. Because I actually think as health insurers, we don't, they don't operate by the golden rule often. And I think sometimes hospitals don't operate by the golden rule. I mean, it's, it's as a physician, you sort of ignore that you're a human and an individual and you don't sort of put yourself in the, I don't want to sort of take that, but we don't always sort of put ourselves in the, uh, as designers of hospitals of 
designers of health plans. We don't put ourselves fundamentally in the shoes of the individuals that we're trying to serve. And so, I don't know, I, th- I think I think Langston probably we could learn a lot from him um, by just, you know, um, you know, you know, dig and be dug in return, you know, like, you know. Uh, yeah, when I when I read that for the first time last night, that's how it came across to me, the golden rule. Um, you know, it also made me think about some of the presentations and workshops that I've been giving lately on consumerism and, and healthcare. And, uh, you know, just this past week, I was listening to uh, a, a dozen or so um, employee benefits managers from large corporations around the country. And there was a clear message uh, that came to me um, in, in our effort to digitize healthcare. And of course, everyone's talking about making healthcare more digital. And I'm, as much as anyone else, a big fan of that. And, and again, you've articulated why that's so important. But in that effort, I think we can't forget that it's not just about digitize, it's about humanize. And I think um, you actually said something along those lines earlier in our conversation with all this technology, um, all the analytics, uh, even the partnerships, um, you know, when you describe consumerism, it's it's really not about that. Um, that's all under the hood stuff. It, it's, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very easy trap to fall into focusing on the mechanics of, um, of what we're trying to do. But it, it's really, and I think the Langston, Hugh, um, Langston Hughes poem really speaks to that. It's about, it's about humanizing healthcare. And so, so can't, I really can't thank you enough for, for bringing up that poem and, and, and sharing it with us today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Marcus, uh, I, I can't tell you how much I've uh, enjoyed uh, this conversation today. Really uh, just completely pumped up listening to you. I, I look forward to hearing more from you and your colleagues at Walmart and, and seeing what unfolds over the next few months and few years. Again, I can't thank you enough. And uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to do this again. I look forward to it. Thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed and benefited from this interview with Marcus Osborne, the Vice President of Health and Wellness Transformation at Walmart. I think the insights that he shared with us are really profound. And again, what he's describing is a major pivot for employers and I think a major inflection in the healthcare delivery market. As always, I am compelled to turn to you, the listeners, and I want to thank those of you out there who are providing care to patients each and every day, and those of you who are supporting our providers. This, in my mind, is the most important work, and uh, you don't get recognized and appreciated enough uh, for it. So again, thank you. Folks, this is Zeb Newworth. You've been listening to Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, thank you and be well.